Yeah? Great. Thank you, Ramona. So, tonight I want to talk about what's really at the center of the Buddha's teaching, which is the question of identity. Identity. Who are you really, seeker? When I first heard somebody describe identity theft, I thought, yes. Leave the cash. Take my identity. (laughs) It's the core of almost all esoteric branches of great religions, the search for self, the understanding of self. How you view yourself in the scheme of things, how you uh, consider yourself, determines how you will feel about your life and how you will treat each others and uh, how you will treat the environment. It's been put many ways, just simply, who are you? And then a Hindu Advaita master would say, who is it that's asking this question? And uh, the Hopi say, you must ask, where did I come from? Where am I going? What am I? In Zen, they have colorful ways of asking the question. Who is it that's dragging this corpse around? (laughs) (laughs) Or who is it that goes in and out of the six sense doors? What was your original face before you were born? Zen master Dogen says, to study the Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to know the self. To know the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all the myriad things. Get the self out of the way. The Buddha said true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. Unfortunately, we're all born with a case of mistaken identity and believe that we are in here and the world is out there. Rarely do we recognize the world is in us, the world is flowing through us. A caveat that almost, it's almost the definition of life to be a, a separate self to have some dividing line between you and the world and something that you have to uh, cross over, you have to take in through the the boundaries. And uh, it's almost the definition of of being uh, alive, is to be taken out of that, that great everything, the great oneness. The Buddha's real triumph was that he saw through all the membranes and realized that we co-arise really with all things. The Buddha was really a scientist. 
he worked with this quality of mind called mindfulness, which is non-reactive, non-judgmental, non-interfering awareness. I think of it as the opposable thumb of consciousness. It allows us to reach out and take hold of reality in a different way. Uh, mindfulness is really like the scientific method. You're being as objective as possible about yourself as the subject. I think it's uh, interesting to realize that it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. I think I mentioned this the first night. Uh, that the clothing of the self wasn't always so tight. And that if you asked a desert nomad or a medieval peasant or even a modern-day you know, peasant what you wanted to do with your life, they wouldn't know what you were talking about. That everybody was kind of born into a position in life and a role in life, and uh, they didn't have to go and make themselves into something. They were already something at birth. Rollo May, a famous psychologist from the 20th century, said, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live. Unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. Evidence from uh, early Greek literature indicates that people thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods. Now we think of that as a form of schizophrenia or something, you know, something uh, wrong. But now, of course, we believe all the voices in our heads are ours, which is its own form of madness. So how do we break from this suffocating identity, this sense of being this single, tiny individual self without any sense of belonging to a larger, a larger entity, a larger process, nature, a tribe, We live in a, what is called the culture of narcissism, it's been called. How do we break out of that? The Buddha says, develop this quality of mindfulness and go explore. Go inside and explore your body, your breath, your emotions, your mind, your thinking. And investigate it sort of... Uh, with a question of where did this come from? What is its ancestry? What is its origin? How did this happen? How did this solid sense of self get born and constructed? I like to think of the process like a a naturalist. You go into the wilderness of self and you begin to take notes about what you see in there. 
It's the thought of your mother. There's some bear scat. There's, you know, it's, it's wild in there. And, you, and you're just basically taking notes. You're just investigating what's in there. And as you investigate, you begin to wonder. I mean, the first shocking insight that almost all of us have when we start doing practice is that our minds are out of control. We thought that that was that we were up there running the show and <laughs> looking out and doing all the the right things, and uh, it turns out that actually there's nobody nobody home. <laughs> but we we don't know that we don't know that until we start investigating on this journey. I think sometimes that we're taking an evolutionary leap, that mindfulness is a new adaptation and will allow us to overrule the instincts we inherit from our biology and our psychology and that we'll begin to be able to free ourselves from the constraints and the conditioning of the past. That this is a, this is a rich and exciting moment in the history of, of humans, in the history of mammals on this planet. I, I also have a fantasy that someday scientists will discover how to tweak our genes so that we're all born mindful. You know, and then we'll look back on, they'll look back on us and say, oh, they had to twist their legs into these awkward positions and <laughs> strain to just get a glimpse of, of mindfulness. The Buddha says, ask the question, this construction, this self, what is its cause, its arising, its ancestry, its origin? And the sense is he's not looking for answers so much as raising doubt. The shift of identity begins to happen organically, as we begin to watch ourselves and, and doubt. For instance, I, I first used breath as a concentration object, which many of us do, most of us do. It's neutral and it's regular and it's in there and it often uh, you know, is a good, uh, it knows what, it, what you need and, and when you need more oxygen or less oxygen. Uh, It's simple, neutral, it brings us into the moment. But over the years, focusing on my breath has brought me much more than just that concentration. Uh, it started to take on a, some meaning, it's kind of telling me I'm alive. Every time I feel my breath, I recognize my, my identity as one of the live ones. I mean, you, you ask people who they are, then they never say, I'm alive. <laughs> but that's your primary identity. That is the, the, the bottom line of who you are. Focusing on my breath over the years also helped me drop down from the story of my life to the fact of my life. That's really, I think, what a lot of what we do in Dharma practice here in the late, no, the early 
21st century is learn how to come back into our bodies and be aware of what's going on in our bodies and to escape to some degree uh, the torment of too, too being too much in our heads and in, in our stories. Carl Jung said, if you're depressed, you're too high up in your mind. With a little reflection, focusing on the breath, you get connected as a cell in the greater breathing of the planet. With a little reflection, you realize with every breath, the next breath you take, you are going to be exchanging nutrients with the plant kingdom. That there is a great breathing going on here and that each of us is part of it. We get 600 million average breaths in a lifetime. Do you know what, which million you're on yet? 16, 16 to 18 breaths a minute. 900 an hour. Lots of opportunity to be present. Kabir, the poet, says, feel the breath within the breath. That there's something in there, that, that in that pulse, that really speaks of life, speaks of aliveness. Similar revelation about who we are, who I am, came through mindfulness of the body. I did my first meditation practice with S.N. Goenka, who uses the body scan. And uh, we were gung-ho back then and young. And we sat a lot and did the body scan. And after a while, the body dissolved. There was no solidity there at all. Uh, I'll never forget sitting out in the, in the group of yogis and the Goenka would sit up there and just chant, Anicca, Anicca, impermanent, impermanent. And you just felt impermanent was what everything, with the process, everything is going through a process. There's no thingness, no thingness. I also began to question, where did this body come from? You know, I mean, I didn't choose it. I don't remember a catalog of choices being offered. <laughs> Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? Would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you? <laughs> you just get a standard issue, you know. So where did this body come from? For a moment, uh, take a hand and touch your knee or the knuckle, touch your knuckle on the other hand. Rub your upper and lower teeth together just a little bit. Feel the hardness of bone. Bones are made of calcium, phosphate, silicates, uh, carbon. Basically, the clay of the earth mysteriously molded into this skeletal shape. Where else could, it, could these bodies have come from? Most of our body is 
liquid. 70 to 75% of our body is liquid, and most of that liquid has the chemical consistency of the oceans. We, we sweat and cry seawater. You can, if you lick your upper lip or, or your wrist, you might be able to taste the ocean right this minute. We're made of all natural ingredients, certified organic. Thich Nhat Hanh said, once I was a rock, once I was a cloud. This is not poetry. This is science. The Buddha said, and you know, he just was so ahead of humanity, what he was discovering. He said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now, it should be felt. So this body is not mine or anyone else's, but uh, evolution is filling in some of the details of what causes and conditions. Each of us start life as a single cell, the shape of an egg. Once the egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, into a tubular, worm-like body. The human embryo grows rudimentary fins, gills, webbed fingers and toes, features of, of reptiles and amphibians, as we cycle through the DNA of ancient ancestors. Even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. It happens in the warm sea of the womb, and at birth we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. It's so puzzling and kind of odd that we went through so much of our history as human beings and sort of didn't notice how similar we were to so many other creatures, you know, that it wasn't until... 150 years ago that uh, Darwin came along and published his shocking uh, findings that were related. I mean, just look at almost any creature, uh, insect, a bird, all the mammals, all have elongated bodies with segmented spines and uh, limbs that, that uh, create motion, coming out from the elongated body and a head on one end, usually with all the senses and eyes and ears and stuff gathered around that head, tailpipe at the end. It's, we're, we're all, we're all in the, have the basic floor plan, the same floor plan, you know. Nature tried it out, it worked. It's so obvious too that this body's not mine gets hungry when it wants to, horny, can't stop it from aging. If we owned these bodies, we could do, you know, they would, and the Buddha always is saying things like this, if, if this body were mine, I could make it be thus, or that way, or, and I don't know, he's probably, as he's teaching, he's probably doing some <laughs> weird yoga move. It feels a little blasphemous to think of the, the Buddha actually doing, doing something. 
Um, where did this body come from? Richard Dawkins has a great uh, in, instruction exercise in one of his books. I think it's called, the book is called um, Mount Improbable, which is talking about evolution. Um, he said, if you had a picture, a photograph of your great-grandfather 150 million great-grandfathers ago, which we all, and we all have a great-grandfather 150 million great-grandfathers ago, or else we wouldn't be here. We had to, you know, be descended. Uh, um, but if we had that photograph, we would have a picture of a fish. Some of our ancestors were fish, were scaly and could breathe underwater, all that. And these brains, how would these brains get this way? I mean, on the verge of awakening, at least. Barely, but at least. <laughs> well, Dr. Paul McLean at the uh, National Institute of, of Health in the mid-60s, 1960s, uh, was studying the history of the brain and realized that it grew in, uh, in all of us in the same order that it grew in evolution and that all of us have, uh, we don't have a brain, we have three brains. We have a fully functioning reptilian brain, fully functioning mammalian brain, the limbic system, and the new human brain or neocortex. And there's growing serious scientific evidence to show that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> truly, truly. That we aren't so, so much uh, rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. <laughs> As we, just as we uh, talk about here, no blame. As a species, you know, uh, there's no blame, especially for humans, because we're, as we're starting to understand our origins in this way, we realize that we're a, we're a baby species. There were millions of generations of dinosaurs, some millions of generations of mammals before humans came along. We just had a We've had 20, 30,000 generations of modern Homo sapiens. Not much. We just got these big brains. Don't know how to use them too well yet. Also, if we see ourselves, if we can see ourselves in the story of evolution, we would realize that we're related to every being that's ever lived. Whether or not we could experience that in meditation, is, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how it, it could be. I kind of have a passion for turning uh, evolutionary understanding into, into something that we could practice and learn to, uh, learn to live from that place, learn to know of ourselves as we are from moment to moment. But uh, 
this little molecule uh, composed of four chemical compounds, and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, the DNA molecule will contribute to the growth of a giant sequoia or a, a rose or an ant or a human being. It seems like it's the magic stuff that separates life from non-life. Deoxyribonucleic acid. Much too cold and clinical a name for this magic substance. So I'm working on a new acronym here. I, I would like you all to join me. Every time you see or hear the letters DNA, think divine natural abundance. How about that? Divine natural abundance. And as you may know, about 99.999% of your DNA is identical to the DNA of the person sitting next to you. All of our individual differences are just a thin little coat of paint over the basic human design. The instructions for building and maintaining you are almost exactly the same as the instructions for building and maintaining me and the Dalai Lama and, and Oprah and, you know, whoever, <laughs> Trump, uh, you know. Uh, we share over 98% of our DNA with apes, nearly 90% with mice, 50% uh, or so with worms, 30% or so with yeast, yeast. <laughs> the Elizabethan England was shocked when we were told we were related to the apes. Now yeast, we have to digest that. Uh, there's a great t-shirt put out by the biology department at UC Santa Cruz. It says, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas. Get over yourself. There's some speculation that the universe was created for bacteria. They were here first. They, they first, the first life appeared on this planet 3.7 billion years ago. Today. <laughs> Happy birthday to you too. And they have thrived and survived all those billion, billions of years. Uh, and now they're everywhere. There are, more, there are more individual bacterium in your mouth right now than all the humans that ever lived on planet Earth. They have churches and roads and <laughs> whole civilization between your cheeks. There's some speculation that bacteria invented humans as a moving feedlot. <laughs> you get room and board and a, cure, a tour of the neighborhood, you know? It just... Okay, too many jokes. Too many jokes. Let's get serious here.
that, you know, the bacteria uh, news keeps, you know, coming out. And recently they, they talked about how 90% of your body weight is, a, is other forms of life. 90%. And uh, there's something like uh, several thousand species of bacteria in your large intestine alone. Uh, they're all, all over you. Just, just don't, don't, don't panic. Just know that. I was, I, I speculate what it would be like if they all got together and you know, rioted or something. And said, you wash too much. You wash too much. You take too many showers. <laughs> Lynn Margulis, one of the great uh, scientists of the last century, uh, molecular biologist, said, our concept of the individual is purely arbitrary. Each of us is a walking ecosystem. So, in meditation practice, we investigate and ask where this comes from, uh, what, what is its origin, what is its ancestry. We get some information from science about, you know, what it is, what the details were. It really, any kind of real transformation requires that in some way we make the information alive inside of us so that we're not, it's not just knowledge, it's wisdom. Wisdom being the core insights from which you live and, and behave. I think the greatest uh, shift in my understanding of myself came through mindfulness of thinking, the thinking mind. In fact, I, I, I started meditation because I knew that my mind had a thinking problem. <laughs> I would start thinking early in the morning, I had you know, a couple thoughts in the afternoon. <laughs> needed to have a few thoughts before I went to sleep at night. I needed an intervention. It was really bad. <laughs> the impression... I don't want to give the impression that thinking is bad. Thinking is great. It is a brilliant adaptive tool allowing us to store information and uh, exchange information and pass information on to the next generations. And uh, it's, it's brilliant. But uh, it also can be a cruel, a cruel master and, and dominate uh, what, what we really might understand better if we, if we occasionally bypass the thinking process um, our culture seems to be fixated on thinking it, and um, most people are completely, uh, us included, I, I would gather, are completely identified, are almost completely identified with their thoughts. 
you know, that's my thought, and uh, that's the, I'm in that story that's being spun. And uh, um, again, it's not bad, but it it dominates our lives, diminishes our lives in that uh, we're always caught in story rather than being present for this moment's experience. Everything is colored by uh, by what our thoughts tell us. I spent the first half of my life learning how to think. Now I'm spending the second half of my life learning how to ignore my thoughts. <laughs> what was I thinking? And it's a major misconception about meditation that we're trying to get rid of our thoughts. We're not. We're learning. We're trying to expose the mind to itself so we can learn how to choose what we want to believe and uh, not get dragged around and pushed around by the, by the constant uh, drumbeat of our thinking. This is Darwin from his secret notebooks. He was never able to actually really include humans in, in the whole scheme of things because the church was very much uh, you know, insistent upon humans being special and outside of the whole evolution saga. But this was from his secret notebooks. He said, why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter. It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. And Stephen Jay Gould said, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. <laughs> that, you know, thinking's wonderful, but it's, it's, just, it's just that. It's just another way of, of knowing of the world. That's how the Buddha saw it a way of reading and interpreting the world. It's very uh, useful and liberating to view thinking as a biological function, as a survival tool. You see, you know, you're constantly planning and going over the past, and so many of our thoughts are about survival. Sometime take a, a session of meditation and count how many of your thoughts can be attributed in some way to your own survival. Pretty much, pretty much the whole shebang. Um, Time or time is it okay? Yeah. yeah, I got it. So one more piece here. It's it's very helpful in the practice of self liberation to know what science is discovering about our brain and cognition, and uh, the latest knowledge says, as I referred to earlier, that. Uh, they found that most of our mental processes take place beneath conscious awareness. On what uh, 
Daniel Dennett, neuroscientist, calls the subpersonal level. In other words, you are not involved in the process that produces most of your interpretations of the world. Even your decisions and behavior are often done beneath uh, conscious awareness. There's a famous uh, experiment by Benjamin LeBay, neuroscientist. Uh, he set, set up people with monitors and had them at, randomly, whenever they felt like it, to re- reach out and press a button. And fi- he found that the brain goes into readiness mode to do, do this action uh, half a second before the person is conscious of making the decision to do it. So actually, the brain decided to do it, and uh, then the person says, I think I'll do it. You know, and... <laughs> And that experiment has been repeated many times and and come to the same conclusion that so much of what we do is decided by this sort of self-organizing system um, that uh, we gather the information from various, from the outside sources and various parts of the brain, you know, and the brain does a little conference call and you know you see a face and it goes through its its uh, rolodex of faces and uh, all the different parts of the brain communicate and decide what what it is you're going to see or what it is and how how you're going to react and uh, you're lucky if you come in late in the game at all or come in at all so who's making the decisions in your life? Who is it? Huh? What is clear is that you are not necessary. Time Magazine cover story, way back in the late 90s. The cover story was called In Search of the Mind. And the final paragraph, and it was summarizing the latest neuroscience information. The last paragraph, I had to write this down. Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. Time magazine. Why wasn't there a national panic of some kind? (laughs) They're telling us the self does not exist. (laughs) Neuroscientist Daniel Dennett says, you enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and then before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head and wondering where the self is. In meditation, we start to see these processes and how uh, how our nervous system works and how our mind works and discover that actually beneath a lot of the clutter and uh, the chatter and the planning and the, you know, the stuff we inherit, beneath all that is this beautiful, clear, mind of, that knows of things and that there's the, the mystery is, is revealed underneath all the detritus of our lives and it's beautiful 
Ajahn Chah, when we examine all that we call mind, we see only a conglomeration of mental elements, not a self. Feeling, memory, perception are all shifting through the mind like leaves in the wind. We can discover this through meditation. The disciple asked Bodhidharma, please help me quiet my mind. Bodhidharma said, bring me your mind so I can quiet it. After a moment, the disciple said, but I can't find my mind. There, said Bodhidharma, I have now quieted your mind. (laughs) So after exploring ourselves in meditation, we start to see the one who knows behind the flow of all mental phenomena, the mystery of consciousness itself. The scientists don't know what it is. They can't find it. The mystics just bow down to it. It's mind with a capital M, without contents. Buddhists sometimes call it original mind or the true nature of mind. The Tibetan Buddhists seem to deify this original mind, give it wondrous names. The unborn, the predicateless primordial essence, the weaver of the web of appearances, and this one, the outbreather and inbreather of infinite universes. Whatever you call it, we all have this pure knowing mind. You can sometimes get a glimpse of it in meditation. Learn to look between the thoughts, between the mind events, and see pure awareness that knows of everything, the great mystery. And always remembering that this experience your, what you're seeing, what you're learning is not just yours. It's not personal to you. It's a human condition, a mammalian condition, a condition of life. All your joys and sorrows arise out of having a nervous system and a brain and a body. Perfect, you are perfectly natural. And looking at evolution, you've got to come to the conclusion that you are not your fault. (laughs) Blame it. Blame it on Mother Nature. Blame it on Gaia. Blame it on... Mother Nature can take it, you know. So... We're just awakening together. It's a rich moment in the history of life. Enjoy. Let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.